This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Welcome back to the Wall Street Coach Podcast. I am very excited uh, to have Turning Tough on today. Turning Tough is uh, got a hell of a story, and uh, we both worked in Wall Street about the same time, except he was completely on a different trajectory than I was, but it's just fun to hear some things that he talks about in his unputdownable book, The Buy Side. I literally read that book in two sittings. I read all the time. Very few books will capture my attention that intensely, but I was riveted from the get-go, Turney. He's an, uh, was a New York Times bestseller. Um, he has consulted for Showtime series Billions, a public speaker. His TED Talk is fantastic, which is uh, titled If Then, which we're going to talk about today. Uh, he's also a journalist for CNBC, and he is working on three new projects, but he can't talk to us about yet, but we'll learn eventually what they are, but whatever they're going to be, they're going to be fascinating and unique. Uh, so thank you, Tony, for coming on here. I really appreciate it because I know you can be very picky about where you visit. So thank you for saying yes to us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. The book itself, uh, you know, on one hand, it gave me that sentimental ride through you know, the excitement, the magic, the money that is Wall Street. Actually, I wore a lot of bling today in honor of our conversation. Just thinking back to the heady days of when I was there and how it was all about the bling. And I, and I don't really wear bling anymore because I live on Hawaii Island. But I was like, today, I'm going to do the bling fraternity. So, but it's, it's an incredible book because it takes, it gives you the excitement, it gives you the highs, it gives you the the sense of like ha that master of the universe experience. Yeah. And, and then it also gives you the dark side, the shadow side of what yeah. and how it can go off the rails really quick. One thing um, that I think is fascinating about it that I cannot take credit for, um, what an interesting time and place, right? So I showed up in the city in 1994 I went to a temp agency where I had to take a typing test. Yeah. I was using a fax machine, no cell phones, internet barely on anyone's desk. And so it's a pretty fascinating time because it was literally the end of the old way. Okay. You know, that's a really good point. And, and do you think that added to like the, the, I mean, I don't know that that is what stood out to me in that book, but do you, what, what's, what makes you say that about that? Period? Well, I just think it's a fascinating time. Like, you know, I have a 15 year old daughter and like her perception of like a life without like cell phones or internet is just like, wait, like you're not, you weren't on TikTok 12 hours a day. Right. <laughs> um, and not that it was such a fascinating part of the book, but like, I think I made one mention of, Literally just the use of emails yeah. gave me a little bit of a heads up, right? Uh, or an yeah. advantage because 
I could now show my personality a little bit, firing off an email to the margin clerks in, in Brooklyn or, you know, the, the trading desk or whatever it was. Right. My personality got to shine a little bit more through through the technology. Um, but yeah, it's not a big part of my book other than um, it takes place from 1994 uh, to basically right after the collapse, um, this is 2009, uh, which I would, I would, you know, I, I, I might argue probably the 15 most volatile years in the history of finance. Yep. Yep. I think you're right. I think you're right for sure. Um, you know, you open the book with a shout out to the canal room, Marcus Linnell. And I want to connect <laughs> back to Marcus on Instagram, thanks to you and your book. And what I want to just do about Marcus Linnell and canal room is you were going in there like a baller. Like, <laughs> I mean, he treated you like the king that you were. And uh, I was not a baller. And yet, he, I, he treated me like I was a baller. Right. One meeting, one meeting. And every time I went back afterwards with one or two friends, I would get the treatment. And as, as I read your book, I was like, that man knew how to treat everybody. Yeah. Like the king or the queen. And that was why, like, I always wanted to go there because where else did I get treated? Like I was a baller when I so wasn't. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, you know, and I talked a little bit about that uh, in my book, but like, that's a skill and it can be applied to nightlife, yes. Wall Street, yes. you name it, podcasts. Yep. Um, it's, it's a skill. Yep, it sure is. But but I feel that that, you know, experience like you you were doing that yourself in Wall Street. You were you were that, you know, gatekeeper. You knew how to encourage people, you knew how to make them feel special and important. And you know, when I look back at that period of time, myself just being in Wall Street, if you made people feel better about themselves, while in an environment that constantly kind of pulled them down, you were going to stand out. Yeah, yeah. Out. But that's just the human, like people just need to be seen. You succeeded at seeing them. And I feel that contributed so much to the opportunities you opened the door. For. I would, yeah, no, I would agree. It definitely, it was a huge part of my success. And it, and it wasn't necessarily having a skill. It was, being kind and being genuine uh, because that, you know, that's got a boomerang effect, you know? Yeah. But it is um, a skill turning. It, no, it, it is, but I'm saying the first part of it, like the basic, just being a good person and being <laughs> kind and being aware, yeah. that costs nothing, right? Correct. Yeah. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Um, but... I I've been What's dying that? to tell you this, that I, the, one of the first hedge funds I was in, we had a keg in the kitchen. <laughs> I don't know if that's good practice. <laughs> I don't think it wasn't good practice. But I looked I mean, back and it was like I, I just I just knew I had stepped into a parallel universe. Right. Although if you would have looked under my mouse pad, you might have found a bag of cocaine that I was like, <laughs> trying to crush. Really? Although I only got one bloody nose on my keyboard in my 15 years. That's uh, pretty impressive. That, yeah, that was, was the only one. <laughs> 
so funny. You're crutching it under the mask. The mask. It's really hilarious. It, it was just, you know, I, and I think in a lot of ways, I was fortunate because of where I wound up being. You know, I didn't experience some of the things that you experienced and other people experienced, but I, I feel like those are the situations or the, so, so our audience, you know, our day traders, our audience probably, I, I'm very curious. I, I would imagine we don't have that many people who are working on Wall Street today. I'd be very curious to see. And if you do, please tell me in the comments so I can be aware of you. <laughs> but I'm kind of curious, you know, now I feel it's the antithesis of what was back then, right? It's so locked down or strives to be. But to people that, I think there's an aura about Wall Street. There's a sexiness still that re it retains. Um, what do you think is the most important thing to tell somebody if they are on the path to working in finance today? Um, whether whether you're working in finance, want to be working in finance, um, currently day trading, whatever, but my number one thing uh, would be um, be teachable, right? And, 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 and the baseline for that is, I would say somewhere around age 28 or 29, uh, I had the epiphany that, or the realization that I actually know nothing, right? I know nothing, right? And when that's my baseline, I'm smarter than 90% of the people in the room. Yeah. Um, and so all of a sudden I become curious and teachable and those two together, sky's the limit. And so when I constantly like remind myself, like Tony, you don't, you don't know anything about, you know, the Japanese gen, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sponge. Right. And I want to learn everything I can. And, and, and I, I realize that I don't, I don't know anything. And, um, I infinitely become smarter. So uh, I would say number one is, you know, be teachable and, and realize knowing what you don't know is, is everything. Yeah. 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 Great advice. Great advice. And we <laughs> talked, we talked about this last time and, and I won't repeat the whole story, but yeah. when, when I was asked that question in an interview, I, I asked if I could have a minute. I went back on the trading floor and asked a couple of people and I went back in the guy's like, I answered it and the guy's like, I saw you ask my guy. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, knowing where to find an answer is just as important as knowing the answer. That was like, when can, you, when can you start? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> best interview ever. That was the best. It was just genius. Genius. <laughs> you and, know, and, it, it, ahead, it, to, just to compare you to Albert Einstein, I think he has a quote, something like that. Like, never memorize something that you can look up. So <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I never heard that. See, you know why? Cause I would never memorize that quote. <laughs> exactly. That's why I'm the idiot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Talk about your brilliant aha moment of the, if then, and if you guys haven't seen Tony's Ted talk, you've got to watch it. It's a very good and short, concise talk on this concept of if then, but you're going to, you're very kind. Actually, though, I want to, I want to, um, full disclosure to the audience. Um, in all Ted talks, there is a limit. You're not allowed to speak over 20 minutes. Like they, they tell you, like it cannot go over 20 minutes. Yeah. And, and I take very pride in 
Mine is 19 minutes and 58 seconds. <laughs> so I nailed, I stuck the landing. Damn, that's like a gymnast who comes down. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Um, so basically, I figured out along my way that uh, I've been living in what I call as if then. Mm -hmm. um, and so when, when I got to Morgan Stanley in 1994, I was making $22,000 a year. And I'd be at the bar and I'd be saying to my friends, I'm like, man, I'm like, if I could just make $50,000 a year, then all of my problems would go away. You know, a few, few years later, I, you know, I'm, I'm making that amount of money. And I'm like, you know, if I could get that girl, then I'd be happy. And then, you know, I got, I got the girl. And then it's like, if I could get that career, you know, that job over there on the buy side, then I would have a career. And, you know, I ended up getting a job on the buy side and, you know, fast forward a couple of years and uh, I'm in my 2,700 square foot apartment in Tribeca, Triplex, right on the Hudson. Uh, uh, it's Christmas time. I'm punching in the, um, my account number to 1-800-CHASE. And, you know, I put in my account number and it's like automated voices. Your balance is 1,800,000, I hit repeat. Your balance is one million. Are you gonna repeat? And I was sitting there. I kept just hitting repeat because I thought the money was gonna make me feel better. And I literally had the the thought. I was like, I just made two million dollars. I was like, if I could just make three million dollars, then all of my problems would go away. And so from there, um, you know, things got bad and dark pretty quickly. And you know, a couple of rehabs and. Um, you know, just a lot of, lot of poor choices and fast forward to 2013 and, uh, my book had just come out and I got a call from the publisher and they're like, Hey, Tony, they're like, there's some rumblings that you, you might get on the New York Times bestseller list. I was like, Oh my God, like so exciting. Hang up the phone. And, um, you know, like a couple of days later, sure enough, you know, I'm a New York Times bestseller. And I was like, oh my God, I'm like freaking out. And the next day, nothing had changed, right? Like I was, I was still the same person. And I realized, I was like, I'm doing it again. You know, the whole if then. So it's something that I'm fully aware of. Um, it's not something that I've necessarily corrected. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an old saying that I love that applies to me also. And that is, you can't stop a bird from landing on your head but you can stop it from building a nest, right? So I have thoughts all the time. Yes. Some are terrible, some are good, some are bad, like some are deviant, whatever. Yeah. Uh, as long as I don't let it build a nest, then I'm fine. Brilliant, never so. heard that phrase, love that phrase. Such a, such a great way of neutralizing it without making yourself wrong or the thought wrong. Right, you can't control it. Yeah. Absolutely true. And right. and to try to control it, it's going to just be, mm. you know, futile and you're going to feel bad about yourself and like something's wrong with you and you're not, you're just right. being human with a mind <laughs> that does what it does. Right. So I still do the if then, um, but I'm, I'm very aware of it. So it's easy to course correct. Yeah. Well, I think we all do it because we are coming from this place culturally that the best is on the other side of what we currently have and i think when you're around 
finance or any industry where there's a lot of money, it's tempting to think, oh, that money will finally give me, you know, that peace of mind or that sense of value or worthiness. I was talking to a um, a money expert. Um, I actually, I got asked to do, um, oh, what is, I'm totally spacing. What's the name of the, that new app? Clubhouse. I got asked, I got asked to do, uh, we, we like four or five panel, um, talk about the, the, the movie wall street yeah, and just kind of the effects and, um, of what it had like culturally and society. But I'm talking to this money expert before the show and he was telling me there's, there's data that proves that like be, beyond, well, maybe for New York, it's like 200,000, but like in the rest of the country, it's like yeah. 80 grand, but like past that, like it doesn't buy you any, any more happiness. So th- there, there is a level, mm. right? Like yeah. to be comfortable. But, it, but it's low, way lower than we think. Totally, way lower, way lower. Right. Yep. And they even, there was another study a few years ago, uh, and, it, and it was about all these, uh, it was based in California, but they were all millionaires. They were over a million dollars, and they were asking them questions about, you know, how nervous were they, how worried were they none of them thought they had enough none of them thought they were safe none of them you know it was just the article was just trying to show that even at that level it still doesn't feel like enough right well um i remember i did a uh, like one of my first meetings it wasn't an interview one of my first meetings with the creators of billions um we were talking that and they were trying to kind of get the mindset of like my former boss raj rajaratnam or stevie cohen uh, or, or any of these guys. Um, cause you know, I, I, I know several of them and I'm like, it even goes beyond what you were saying about like not having enough. There's, there's something in them that's so ultra competitive that they just have to win no matter, no matter what it is, yep. they have to win. And there is no winning in when it comes to wall street and making money. Right. Okay. So like, that kind of makes it a little difficult because you're because you're always climbing to a top that doesn't exist right yeah it's so like getting it's like, ahead of traffic just... yeah, it, it, exactly exactly <laughs> that's a very good metaphor you, it's like you're all going to the same place the box in the ground <laughs> right right um what do you feel you were surprised, was there there a surprise that came as you were in the midst of still being in finance? Was was there any sort of sense of like, I thought this would be different? Like, it sounds like your sense of I've arrived was quickly stolen by there's something on the other side. But even in those moments, at least in the beginning, when you were, you know, you got in, you got that opportunity, And then another opportunity, was there the sense of like, I thought it would look different or I would look different or it would be different? Um, Maybe a little bit, but it probably felt more like it was like I was being followed, if that makes sense. I mean, disregard the like paranoia from cocaine, but like it was it was something I couldn't shake. Right. Like so it it kept following me this like discontent and I could never shake it. And 
no matter where I landed or how much I, you know, um, amassed or consumed or whatever it was, um, I was just constantly sort of in competition with myself. And so uh, I'm, I'm sure there were small moments of just like, wait, what am I doing? Yeah. But never, never long enough to like stop me, um, yep. you know. And so, you know, I have the disease of more, um, and so doesn't matter what it is. Like I just want more. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you tell the audience that isn't familiar with who you are what what the buy side means? Uh, probably most everybody here does understand what that means. But for you, what, what was, just give us the cliff note version of what they'll experience in your book and your journey. Sure. Uh, I mean, in the simplest terms, it just means I was the client, right? So I'm, I'm the client of Wall Street. I buy and I sell. Um, I'm the trader of a particular portfolio. When I was at Oregon, we managed 1.4 billion. Uh, so I was responsible of executing the orders and prop trading, <clears throat> um, any, any money-making opportunities that, that I saw. And so as a, you know, 32-year-old single guy living in Manhattan, uh, I basically was also responsible for giving out $50 million in commissions, right? And so that, that makes you very popular uh, <laughs> yeah. because, you know, I had 50 men and women that I could call. So when I had an order to buy, you know, half a million Amgen, like you were hoping I called you. Um, and the difference between, <coughs> excuse me, like execution between like Goldman Sachs and me doing it myself on the machine with internet really wasn't any difference, right? Yeah. Um, so the real big difference came, you know, who could get us meetings, who could get us one-on-one um, meetings, you know, with companies at a conference, um, who gave me good or inside information. Um, so, you know, it really kind of came down to that, but the, the, the big factor for me was who took me to Vegas, who took me to dinner last night, who gave me Knicks tickets. Like that's, of course, I'm going to pay the guy who, you know, took me out and partied till 4am. Like, absolutely. Absolutely. So, that it's, it's scratch my back. I'll scratch your back. <laughs> right. That's how it all comes down. It all shakes yeah. out to that because we're human beings who, you know, we know this yeah. guy did us a solid. We're going to return the favor. Right. Well, the one, th- there was sort of a science to it in terms of like, because we would keep a, a commission run and a lot of people didn't know at the time we had targets for each broker. So going in, I would know like, okay, we want to pay Goldman Sachs, uh, the least amount of commissions wow. where we can get the most amount of resources. Right. Yeah. And we kind of figured out it, it's, it's all, I'm sure has changed, but we kind of figured out like if you pay Goldman Sachs 1 million or you pay them 2 million, you get the same level of service. So I would pay them a million and then, you know, basically pay these penny brokers, you know, the, the balance. Um, and so it really kind of became a game of, you know, who to pay and how much to pay, right? Because I would pay someone like Cowan, who had an incredible healthcare research call, I would pay them a million dollars and I would be one of like a top 10 account. Um, and so it was really kind of 
figuring out who to pay and when to pay. And, um, you know, cause you want to get the most bang for your buck. Absolutely. You do. Absolutely. Especially when your bonus is based on you spreading that money around. <laughs> right. Although there'd be times where like my portfolio manager would be like, Tony, who's, um, buzzard L G Q M um, R capital. And I'm like, Oh, they're really good at execution. Like, like, well, why are we paying $600,000? And I'm like, oh, they, you know, they took a couple losses. Like, meanwhile, it was like my, my buddy who I'm like, just throwing it to, like, works at a like no name shop. Oh, shit. That's so funny. There's, yeah. there's a, amazing, there's, a, there's so many amazing scenes in your book, but there's one amazing scene where you're basically being scolded by the woman who hired you. And she's trying to she's trying to wake you up and get, and get you like in the. So that's when I was at Morgan Stanley. Yeah, tell us that right, early on. Okay, what what about it? I'm sorry. I, I just I just found it was just an amazing moment where I felt like you got oh I I have to work something here like have to work my personality like there was there right, it right. felt like an awakening in a way for you. Yeah. No. Definitely. Um, yeah, I, I I was still kind of trying to find my way. It's like, I don't know if it was ingrained in me from, you know, my childhood or like how I was raised or whatever. Like, I I grew up thinking, like, I remember the summer of 1995. I'm, I'm basically the same age. My last digit is the same as the last digit of the year. So in 95, I know I was, I was 25. Yeah. And... Um, cause I was born in 69, but, um, I remember summer 95 and I was like, Oh, this is, this is it. Like, this is the last summer. Like I didn't think people North of 25 were allowed to have fun. Right. Wow. And so, you know, when I'm working in this corporate environment, I didn't know that I was allowed to show my personality. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I thought I was supposed to be this like corporate stiff. Um, so it took years and it also took me realizing wait, this is my, my not superpower, but this is, this is my talent. Like I, this is, this is all I got, you know? So, um, yeah, it took a little bit, but like once I kind of got over the hump, I don't know if you remember this. Um, this was a huge leap for me. They asked me to organize a party and, um, on, I, I took it upon myself to create a newsletter, uh, called the tourney tape. And I spent like a weekend writing this whole newsletter, uh, humorous. And I ended up passing it around to everyone on the floor. It was called the tourney tape. Uh, it was a huge hit. Everyone showed up at the party. And that's kind of when I was like, all right, like, I know my role. I found, I found my edge. I found right. my edge. The other thing that I think is fascinating is your ability, you know, we we found, I I found out thanks to JJ JJ by the way his um his podcast interview with us is the most watched podcast Matthew McConaughey has not even beat JJ oh wow so JJ has like he's just got he's got the baller status still he really does <laughs> and he talked about you and how you know you guys knew each other back in the day so how did you guys like how did you bump into each other just out of curiosity i i I honestly couldn't tell you i i know he was working at a broker and 
he was introduced to me. Wow. Uh, and then it was sort of his partying situation where we hit it off. Um, but it, it was, it was a blur. Like, I don't know who put us in Dutch. I don't, I don't know. Wow. wow. That's hilarious. He's a great, great guy though. Yeah. Really great guy. Great guy. It's, I think, you know, it's fascinating to me, those who survived, you know, that. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think you're one of them that did? Well, I mean, did I survive? You did, Tony. You're here talking to me today. That <laughs> I'm not still yeah. in the business, but um, <clears throat> yeah, no, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't know. I just, I think luck has something to do with it, you know, and perseverance and, you know, who knows? So, so let's share with the audience just how bad it got right before you said, huh, maybe I best take this to a rehab place. <laughs> well, the first time, um, it was October of 2006, and I was on the corner of 54th and Park Avenue, and uh, I called in sick so many times that if I did again, I was going to get fired, and um, if I'd showed up for work, I was going to get fired because I was on a three-day bender, and so I ended up um, seeing this puddle that had formed the night before, and it was about 5 a.m., still dark out, and I made the decision that I was going to mug myself, so I repeatedly threw myself into this puddle you know, just slamming my body against the pavement, went up to the hedge fund and like limped in, I'm soaking wet, I'm bleeding, um, my pants are ripped and I, I go to, you know, the, the main dude and I was just like, I, I, I was mugged and just turned around and limped out and um, <clears throat> I, I ended up rehab like, you know, 48 hours later. Um, and when I got back, I kind of had a seamless transition. Um, Wall Street was like, you know, come on back, I got a job like that. Um, your girlfriend sort of took me back and you know, my daughter was one at the time. Yeah. And so, um, I made it about a year and a half. Uh, and then I kind of had this idea that I was like, you know what? I know I'm an addict. I know I'm an alcoholic. So I can't have one drink. I can't have one line of cocaine. Why not one relapse? So I planned this big, huge night. I uh, got a hotel room. Uh, you know, it's like a one man bachelor party and called my girlfriend, told her I wasn't coming. I told her I was going to stay in the city for the night and just got after it. And so the next day I was kind of like, you know what? I can do that once a quarter by lunchtime. I'm saying I can do it once a month, but you know, by the closing bell, I was saying once a week, next day, rented a hotel room. And, um, so that, you know, quickly just, you know, kind of. Uh, hit rock bottom again. And uh, this time I was <clears throat> on the porch of my 6,000 square foot house that was going into foreclosure and half furnished because my girlfriend and daughter had gone. And I'm standing out on the porch in the freezing cold, chain smoking cigarettes, another three day bender. And it's the day that my former boss, Raj Rajaratnam, uh, got picked up by the FBI and they're doing the perp walk on CNBC. And I'm just freaking out because I'm thinking the FBI is coming to get me. And then all of a sudden these two cars come down my driveway and I'm like, Oh my God, this is it. I'm going like, I'm going to jail or prison, I should say. Um, and ended up being a bunch of dudes who I knew from recovery and 
they were there to kind of save me. And then I went back to rehab. Wow. Amazing. Amazing that they showed <laughs> up. Tell us about what you feel helped you continue to stay sober. What is it you lean into? <clears throat> um, you know, it's probably number one is um, I got honest with myself. Um, you know, I, the, the head of the second rehab pulled me aside, you know, like maybe like the halfway point. He said to me, he goes, I got a full foolproof relapse prevention program. I was like, give it to me. And he goes, all right. He goes, this is what you want to do. He goes, if you're going to pick up, he goes, you write a list of like seven things, right? And, you know, it could be like, these are the things you have to do before you want to, before you pick up. And it's like, all right, number one, call a family member. Number two, call your sponsor. Three, go to a meeting. Four, uh, you know, run five miles. You know, five, knit a sweater, whatever. Like you write these seven things that you have to do before you're going to pick up. And I go, I'm like, looking at them. I'm like, <clears throat> I'm like, if I want to use, I'm just, I'm just going to pick it up. And he's like, kind of get like shrugged and just like walked away. And I was like, oh my God. I'm like, I can't even keep a pack with myself. Right. So if, if I can't be honest with myself, like who, who can I be honest with? And it's kind of the moment I realized that I was full of shit. Right. And with that came, you know, a rush of emotion. But like another thing I realized was I kept believing this lie, which was, and it's, you know, looking back, it's like, I'm such an idiot, but I kept telling myself it was going to be different the next time. Right. I would blow myself up, party till six in the morning, be in hell at work, say, swear to God, I was never doing it again. A day or two later, you know, and I'd be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to get Coke and I'm going to drink tonight, but I'm going to stop at midnight, right? And, like, I kept believing that little lie. And, like, once I finally stopped, like, collecting data yeah. and, and just said, I, I can't stop. Yeah. I can never stop. Yeah. And once I admitted that, you know, and realized, like, that was just the truth, yeah. you know, and people, a lot of people resist, you know, in 12 steps, like the first step is uh, admit being powerless and right. Yeah. People have a problem with that, right? Like, especially kind of type A and what they don't realize is by me admitting that I'm powerless gives me back all of the power. Like I'm now, I've got the power because I know that I'm powerless, you know? And so it's kind of convoluted, but like I've well, collected enough data to know that if, if I pick up a drink or smoke a joint or do a line right now, like it's not going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so interesting turning because that's the big aha that you really got just in a different way around what you saw in finance. You were like, I know nothing. Yeah. yeah. The same, you know, kind of Zen truth. Like, I know nothing. I am not powerful. Gives you the power. Yeah. Knowing nothing is the knowing, the most important. Yeah, knowing, knowing nothing and being powerless gave me all, all the power. Yes. Tony, did you see, yeah. um, was it at the same time that you, like, became sober and were able to recognize that you 
were not able to control that? Was that at the same time that the you're like if then realization came about? Because I can um, I see a correlation there, but I'm not sure if that. Yeah, the, the the if then, um, it's a great question, and the if then really sort of came to me later. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really until two things happened to me um, <clears throat> after I got sober for a couple of years. So it was like 2011 or 12, and so I'd been sober for a couple of years, and I still was not happy, and I was kind of depressed and not not in a good place and i'm like something's fucking wrong with me right like like, i'm still not happy i i see my daughter every day i'm getting along great with my ex all my amends went flawlessly just got a huge book deal from random house like how can i not be happy something is wrong with me and so i went to the computer and i looked up what um the pursuit of happiness meant Mm -hmm. and what i learned was that in 1776 it meant honor, courage, how you live your life. And so like that was a huge turning point for me where I realized, okay, I'm my goal and definition of happiness is, is, is way off. Like, you know, yeah, I might be sober, but like, <laughs> I got a lot of work to do. Um, and so it wasn't until I became a New York Times bestseller in 2013. And I'd had that if then experience in sobriety that I was able to kind of bring it all together. Um, and so, you know, just kind of wrapping the whole thing up, one of the things that I find so powerful for me is when, when you can have a sober reference or a sober experience, when you're able to have sort of like an experience in, you know, it's easy when you're talking about sober and not sober, but this applies um, in all facets of life. But like when I was able to kind of, sort of have an experience of, you know, what it means to be like one day at a time. Like I could apply that to the rest of my life for, for, for future experiences. And so, you know, kind of when I had that if then moment and realization, I was like, Oh, like I do this. Right. And so like now I started paying attention. Um, so it kind of you know, getting back to your original question, it's been um, a slow build and I keep kind of just putting stuff on top of each other. Um, but that is significantly different than my Wall Street career where there was no foundation and it was just fucking, you know, build as high as you can, you know. Regardless of whether there's a foundation underneath or not. Yeah. Yep. When, what was it? I, I can't recall when you... Why did you leave, Galleen? You kind of left in the nick of time. <laughs> um, I actually got a huge life-changing opportunity. So my former boss left and started a hedge fund. And he said, he goes, Turning, he goes, uh, you can come with me. He goes, why don't you stay here and see how they treat you? Right. So I was like, all right. And in a matter of three months, I went from an assistant or a matter of four months, I went from a, an assistant at PCS at Morgan Stanley to the head healthcare trader of a billion dollar fund at Galleon. And so like, I'm like, just trying to like not mess up. Right. Um, and so I, I guess I did a decent enough job because uh, after about three or four months, they still hadn't hired anyone for my boss's position. And the healthcare team decided to go out and start Argus Partners, and they they asked me to come with them, 
And so like in a matter of four months, I went from an assistant in PCS at Morgan Stanley to a founding partner of a billion dollar hedge fund. It was nuts. Not normal. <laughs> Not normal at all. <laughs> so that takes place. And what I'm trying to remember that decision once he left, what, what, what happened again? Wasn't there some kind of, they were, they were kind of doubting themselves. They were upset that he had left. And there was a bit of a crossroads where you were like, Ooh, do I want to stay here or. Well, there, yeah, there was, there was a lot of drama back and forth, but, um, so I ended up having a conversation with my uncle, uh, like the night before I was supposed to resign. So I went to the new offices of Argus, got my offer. Um, you know, I got like 10% of the business or something, which is home run, um, and go back to Galleon. And so now I got to, I got to resign to like, you know, the big bad wolf. And it was terrifying. And, my uncle gave me some really great advice. He said, look, he goes, um, he goes, when you decide to resign, he goes, don't, don't change your mind. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, look, he goes, they might offer you more money. Yeah. He goes, but they will never forget. And, and he's like, they will get that money back yes, somehow, some way. And so. And they'll never got, trust you. Right. So I go in there, I resign, you know, at this point I'm 29 or 30 years old. And, um, they're like, we will, we will put $300,000 into your checking account today if you stay. And I was just like, Nope. And they're like, you're not going to stay for 300 grand right now. I was like, Nope. I left. I was courageous. Thank God. for (laughs) But I guarantee you, they would have got that 300 grand back at some point. Absolutely. Especially and, those guys. And you might be in jail now because you would have stayed. Totally. Totally. That's probably even a, a stronger possibility. Right? I mean, God, that is not the place you want to be. Yeah. I'm, I, I feel like you have a lot of angels and like <laughs> like beams that came out the window in the neck of time, like Mr. Magoo. Like you did. Yeah. Right before that all blew up, you got out that your uncle gave you that great advice. Like yeah. you have a lot of grace that shows up in that book. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You definitely do. You definitely do. The other piece that I just want to touch on because I think it's really fascinating is you talk about how you were able to handle your losses. Uh, and that is, of course, something a lot of traders struggle with. They personalize them. You seem to have a really great success track record of not personalizing those losses in your in your trades. Right. So what? Well, I'm oh, sorry. Talk about that. Um, well, um, yeah, uh, I I was I was complimented a lot on on how well I I was able to take a loss and you know kind of like one of the ways that I used to frame it. I was like, well. If, you know, and, and I think we talked about this last time, but like, I used to get annoyed when, when people would be like, well, where did I buy it? You know? And I'm like, I don't give a shit where you bought it this morning. You walked in and you didn't sell it. So it's your position. Um, but, um, so 
the way I sort of framed it in my head was like, if if Amgen and I'm making a number up, like Amgen's trading at 98. If I, you know, let's say I bought it at 100, right, and I sell it at 98, and next week it's it's trading at 90. It's an awesome trade, like awesome trade, right? Um, should have I shorted it? Of course, but whatever. Like, and so once I kind of realized. I can make great trades with losers. Like it just kind of changed the game for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And I talked a little bit about this in in the book. Um, Years later, I was diagnosed with dysthymia, which is a low grade depression. So that might've actually sort of also helped me a little bit um, just because emotionally I didn't, didn't get attached um, to anything. Um, And so, you know, I, I, I would recommend, you know, sometimes I would say to my analysts, like, I wanted to remove their computer screens. Like, don't even let them know where things are trading, right? Wow. Like, you tell me where to sell, you tell me where to buy, don't look at the computer. Wow. Um, well, but I mean, there's, you know, and, and I think we talked about this also. Um, I used to take secret mental notes. Um, they, they, you know, years later, they would kind of catch on to me, but... I would talk to people when their guard was down, like on a quiet Friday or downstairs smoking a cigarette or whatever. And I would get these sort of unemotional, honest responses. And then I'd go back to the desk and I would write it down. And, you know, three months later, I'd walk in the office. I'd be like, you said you'd buy Intel if it ever reached this. And they're like, but no, no, it's down seven. No. I'm like, you said it. And I'm like, I'm going to buy it. They're like, no. But they were too afraid. They were too afraid. Yeah. And, and, and the fact that you could tell that when they were unemotional, there was jewels there. That, that is just genius, dude. That is genius. <laughs> well, it, I mean, I don't know. I mean, if you pay attention, you know when, when people are good at their job. And, and this is the other thing. And we, we talked a little bit about it and it's in my book. I also paid attention to people's weaknesses, right? So like when I was at Argus, our best analyst was this med tech guy, right? He was, he was phenomenal, but he, he, um, I'm trying to be um, better with my words. So, and I don't want to like, you know, cross any lines of masculinity. Um, like he, he would be called derogatory um, names as, as not being a, a man. And, but, but I knew when he came to my desk and he'd be like, attorney, um, can, can you, can you buy 25 Medtronics? And I'd be like, okay, well, I'm like, well, what do you know? And, and like, he'd kind of like give me something. And that dude told me to buy 25. I was buying 75 because <laughs> he was so good. Right. Oh, and so like, I knew other people's weaknesses and their tells. And so yeah. I knew how to kind of also trade off of them. So that, so the guy's got the wisdom, but he doesn't have the confidence to stand in the wisdom. Yes. Right. Yeah, I really, I really, so tell us what you do. Do you trade it all now, your own account? Uh, no, all my money is um, up with a friend um, from high school and I don't even, don't worry about it. Do you still get calls from people who want to have you back? Um, no, not, not, no. I mean, I still have conversations, mm-hmm. um, but not like, hey, come work for me. Mm-hmm. Do you miss it? No, like when I wake up in the morning, um, I get excited to, um, 
you know, work on uh, the creative product projects that I'm currently be doing. Like that's what excites me. So yeah. 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 What, what is it? Do you think I remember that you studied journalism when you first went to school and then this just showed up in your path? Same uncle, by the way, that opened up that door that gave you the wisdom many years later about the Wait, which uncle? Wait, what? You got the same uncle, the uncle that gave you the opportunity to come into finance who got you the 10 interviews in two seconds. Right, that's Uncle same, Tucker. Is that the same uncle that gave you the advice about don't? Yes. Once you, oh. Yeah, Uncle Tucker. Okay, yeah. good old Uncle Tucker. All right, so now you, you, you're, you didn't go into journalism. You've been, you wrote the book, you had become a bestseller. You've been involved in other writing projects. Does this, does what you had hoped by way of that like passion by way of that light, is that lit now by your writing, by your journalism? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I spent 15 years trying to kind of fill this void in me with drugs and sex and porn and like you name it, booze, power, money, all of it. And, and it wasn't until um, I kind of started uh, filling this void with like writing and, um, you know, just being creative and, um it, it wasn't until then, and I kind of like leaned into recovery and sobriety that I started to feel whole again. Yeah, it's beautiful. What was it like writing your book for you? Writing what? My book? book? Well, because I've written a couple of books for other people, but um, this is, it's good and bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My, my book was, uh, it was a fantastic experience. Um, it, uh, it was great. You know, it, it, it really, it really sort of filled me and it, and it was fun. Um, and, and I learned so much more about myself. Uh, and I kept saying, you know, you know, I just want to keep doing this. Right. Yeah. Like, that's all, all I want to do. And, you know, I'm a big believer and you got to be careful with your words. And so, like, you know, I'm kind of shifting that because not that I need abundance, but like, I still want to be successful. I still I'm, I'm driven like. I want, um, I want more, right? And and I want challenges. And so, um, you know, I, I, I'm going to stop writing books for other people. Um, you know, that pays the rent, but uh, yeah, sure. doesn't, doesn't do much for my career. Uh, so I'm, I'm working on a couple of things with my name on it. Um, so we'll, we'll go from there. Good, I'm glad. I, I just, <laughs> I had to, I had to ask you about how it was writing the book because I don't really think, a book can be as riveting and as fun as yours was without having the author enjoy telling the story. <laughs> yeah. I, um, another thing I think helped me write it was I made the creative choice that um, I was going to write it first person present tense. Right. And so, cause at no moment did I want to have to reflect like when I make some terrible decision down in South Beach in 2003, I don't want to have to explain myself, right? And so I was like, no, I'm going to be first person, present tense, and in that moment, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And another thing, like you, you've heard of people say, like, um, method acting. You've heard of that, right? Sure. So I sort of wrote that this book is it sort of is like method writing, right? And so when there'd be a scene when I was doing coke, I kind of like would be pacing around my computer. And I'm like, you know, and um, I was tidying it like I was coked up and I was like, you know, really short, choppy sentences. And and so, like, I tried to 
be who yeah. I was at that given time yes. when I wrote it because I wanted the audience to feel it with me. I yeah. felt it with you, Matt. I was going to say, it comes across. It, <laughs> it comes across. It's just so good. Uh, has there ever been discussion about becoming a movie? Uh, it was originally option. Um, I. It was a little bad timing in the sense that it was optioned by Sony on um, on publication day, <clears throat> and they wanted to do it as a TV series. Wow! And um, that following, they they sat on it, and then that following December, The Wolf of Wall Street came out, and then a few months later, Billions was announced, and so they both stole a little bit of my thunder. You know, mm-hmm. like the addiction story from Wolf of Wall Street and the insider trading hedge fund life of billions. And so my project kind of just went away, but I would say nothing's ever dead. Yep. Um, yep. So we'll On see. Wall Street, in Wall Street and in Hollywood. Yeah, definitely. And I can see in like five years, it's going to, people are going to be like, we want to, we want to hear that story again. <laughs> I Anything else that you want to speak to turning before we close her up? No, uh, I thank you so much. Um, I can't wait to come visit you in Hawaii. I can't wait till you come visit me too. <laughs> and the Big Island didn't your friend is on the Big Island, isn't he? I I think I, I I get confused. I I I know Hawaii is a state, and that's where my knowledge ends. <laughs> I think you said he has a place on Big Island and also works in Oahu. So that's a plane. Um, that sounds familiar. Plane ride away, but right. you're you're gonna have to come to to you know. Let me buy you a Mai Tai. Well, I can't buy you. I'll, got, I'll get you a virgin Mai Tai. There you go. But there I'll find is. an umbrella drink that you can have. And okay. then for him to show you the island, because this is a very magical place. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. All right. So great to have you on. Thank, Thank you, so you much, for, your, for your wisdom. And, you know, again, people, if you haven't read his book, The Buy Side, read it because it's just not just lessons about finance and Wall Street, but lessons just about life. So, and you do it in such an incredibly hilarious, you're so funny. That's the other <laughs> thing I meant to say. Like, not only is it a riveting book, but it's hilarious. That's really hard to write, Tony. Make <laughs> me you. laugh out loud in my living room. Like, I did it well, I have I have 50 years of making fun of myself, so... <laughs> You you are a very creative writer, so <laughs> thank you for coming thank on. Thank you. Let us know what you think about this amazing man in our comments, and we'll see you guys the next time on the Wall Street Coach Podcast. This has been the Wall Street Coach Podcast with K-Man Curtin. You can find out more about her and her team online at thewallstreetcoach.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.